be seated this morning and take out your Bibles returning once again to Revelation chapter 4 and would that God would be pleased to grant us a vision of his greatness from this text once again this morning. Revelation chapter 4. For those who might think I'm completely aloof this morning, it is not entirely lost on me that today is Mother's Day, and uh, this is not a traditional Mother's Day text, and earlier in the week I contemplated for a few seconds anyway, uh, bringing a more traditional Mother's Day text this morning, but the more I thought about it, uh, it would be a complete disservice to our, our mothers, to our ladies uh, even on this special day, though Mother's Day is certainly a, a day to honor our mothers and to express appreciation to them and our grandmothers. And, and no, it doesn't end there. It's a day to recognize God's gift, gift of womanhood um, to the women in our lives, for the gifts of God that they are and the powerful contributions that you have all made uh, to our lives. Uh, Mother's Day is a wonderful time of celebration, but also it, it can be a very painful day on a number of different levels uh, for that friend of yours whose child is battling a serious illness this morning. Uh, this Mother's Day is, is a bitter reminder to her, or, or worse, for that mother who has lost a loved a child maybe in the last year or recently. Maybe it's a bitter day for that mother who knows, for that woman who knows uh, this is likely to be the last Mother's Day with my mom. Or for that friend of yours who, man, would love to be a mother. But they're not. And today is a day of mourning and fertility. It's a day of mourning and long ago, that abortion that they, they were young and they regret. It's a day of thinking about the, the miscarriages. Mother's Day can be rough for that one who didn't have a great mom. Their memories of their mom was an abusive mother. It can be a bitter day for those whose children have grown up and now their adult children are estranged from them, and they won't even hear from their children. I, I'm not trying to downplay Mother's Day. It's a day to celebrate. But we also understand that there are difficult situations for many women on this day. And while Mother's Day is a day to recognize and be thankful, it's also a day to, to realize that for many women, this day intensifies a deep, pain that they're dealing with this morning. And the fact is, motherhood, and for that matter, fatherhood, is lived out in a Genesis 3 world. The narrative for moms and dads has always been a mixture of great joy, great memories, mixed in with tremendous hurting and tremendous pain. And that's why I'd be a disservice to go away from Revelation chapter 4 this morning because Revelation 4 and 5 is designed to help hurting Christians look beyond the pain. Look beyond the, that strange, painful place. Look beyond the, the hurts of this world. And for today to focus upon the glories and the greatness of God, the majesty and the grace of God, and then seeing that be enabled to press on in motherhood through the intense joys, but also the pain that accompanies motherhood and fatherhood in a Genesis 3 world. So I'm convinced that continuing in our study of Revelation 4 is the most profitable thing that we can do this morning to honor our mothers, our grandmothers, and the women who are with us this morning. So to that end, we continue where we left off last week, and we've already read the text this morning, just a few outlying reminders as we get into it. Uh, I want to remind you that the approach that we're taking, because the vision of Revelation 4 and 5 is so massive and so, I mean, it's just, where do you, where do you, 
where do you grab hold to hold on to, right? We're using the prepositions uh, found throughout the text, paying attention to the prepositions in this passage. The throne is the centerpiece in this vision. Christ calls John up, look up. We've been looking in the seven churches. Seven churches, look up. Even in the midst of your situation, simultaneous to all the problems you're having in your churches and the things in your individual lives, look up. This is what's going on up here. And in the middle of it is a throne. And then the rest of Revelation 4 and into chapter 5 is the stuff that's happening in relation to that throne. So the approach that we've taken is, going back two weeks now, to the throne. Right, Verse 1, come up to the throne. Look, see the throne. In verses 2 and 3, we looked at the one on the throne. And then in verse 4, the one around the throne. Then verse 5, we look at what's happening from the throne. Verse 5 and 6, the things that are before the throne. Verse 6 through 8, beside the throne. And then verses 8 through 11, the things that are going towards the throne. And we draw those prepositions straight out of the text itself. And this gives us at least some way with all that's going on in this passage to try to make some kind of sense, to kind of organize the information so that we can really make profitable use of it. And again, I remind you, this is not a photograph of what's happening in heaven right now. It's, not, it's a vision. It's not intended to be a literal, there is a literal throne there and there are literal things. Then that creates all kinds of problems when we get into the text. It's a vision to help us to understand the majesty of our God in relation to this throne and all that's going on around him in relation to him. We've thus far considered the first three of these, the one uh, being called up to the throne last week, the one on the throne, and, and then also the ones around the throne. And we spent a great deal of time thinking about John's language and his use of imagery, he does not describe for us uh, what God looks like. He uses these jewels and the emerald colored rainbow. And we, we, we talked about what those things symbolized last week that just draw our hearts to the majesty of the one on the throne. And then around the throne, kind of to enhance our vision of the one on the throne, we're introduced to these things going on around it. And the first of these where we left off last Lord's Day are the 24 elders who are sitting on the 24 thrones around the throne. And of course, inquiring minds want to know what are these 24 things. And I told you my conviction is that the key to their identity is in the number 24. We're going to see this over and over in relation, uh, in, in Revelation, that the use of numbers over and over have a purpose. And their identity is tied to the number 24. It's a reference to the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament and the 12 apostles in the New Testament. What is that? That's the church. That's the church going throughout uh, redemptive history. And so what we have here, the elders are representative of the entire community of the saved, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Not that it matters. I do think they are a, uh, a specific type of angel. You have cherubim, you have seraphim, and, and these elders would be uh, another type of them. And we'll talk more about that in the weeks to come. But what are they doing? It's less important who they are. And that's the big takeaway as we're going. It's less important who these are and who these four creatures are. It's more important what are they doing? What do they represent? And what are they doing in relation to the throne? And what we see about this, this one who, these 24 elders who represent the church from Old Testament and New Testament, where they are mesmerized by the one on the throne. That's what we need to take note of. They are captivated by the one on the throne. They are obsessed with the glory of the one that is on the throne. Now, why is that significant for us this morning? What is that saying to us? Man, this is helpful to us because in our brokenness, what this is saying to you and I is whatever our present circumstances are, whatever we're going through, Maybe it's just the mundane monotony of life, and you're just trying to just trudge through. Or, or, or maybe you're in a marriage, you're just, you're going in, you're hitting, you've hit a rocky spot, and it, it's difficult, and you're not getting along. Or, or maybe you, you, you're, you're overcome by some disease, and it's burdensome, kind of like we saw in Psalm 116 this morning. It's just a debilitating disease. Maybe you're in a job situation you're just unhappy with. You just don't, you just, you're just dissatisfied. 
no matter how hard the struggle your life may be, or, or even how jubilant your life may be, what this is telling you is, hey, church, look up. This is where your identity is. This is where your place really is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. This, these representatives around the throne, they are representing you, the church, you. And down here, seven churches, you may be overcome and you're dealing with all kinds of compromise with the world and, and temptation and all kinds of, but, but by the blood of Christ, this is your home. This is, and you're represented in this vision by these 24 elders around the throne. This is where you belong. Paul, when he writes to the Ephesians, tells us that God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. And then he goes on to say this. God raised Jesus, uh, or he goes on to tell us that he has raised us up with Christ and seated us in the heavenly places with Christ. Revelation 4 is just a vision of that. We're not there yet. It's a vision. We are represented as showing through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That's where we are. Just as God placed the resurrected Christ at his right hand, and so too through Christ, we've been placed at Christ's right hand right there. That's what's reflected and symbolized here in this vision. That's where our identity is. Not in our life circumstances, and I know they're hard. Not in our, 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 our marriages and, and job situations and the debilitating illnesses that we may be battling. Our place is right here around the throne of Almighty God. And notice as we began with the throne and we're working outward in concentric circles, notice it is the church that is represented closest to the throne. No one in between us. Through Christ we've been given, when the veil torn right, access to the Father. That's what's depicted here in these 24 elders. Who cares uh, so many arguments and debates about who these 24 elders are completely misses the point. Go back to fundamentally what they symbolize, not literally. Who, what do they symbolize? What do they represent? It's us and the fullness of the gospel work in us. And it's pictured that right now we have bold access before the throne of grace because we're in the throne room. That's why we gather at 930 for prayer. That's a fruitless endeavor if we don't have access to him. But through Christ, that's our placement. Man, I, here's your Mother's Day. Mom, if you're struggling, if you're hurting, if you're, if you're just overwhelmed, uh, you just, you're questioning so many things about yourself as a mother, it's understandable. But this is not, where, this is not your identity. Your family is not your identity. That's your identity. Look up. See those 24 elders around the throne. That's where we, that's your home. That's your hope. And look at your proximity to that one on the throne. Find your hope there. Well, let's continue on. We come to verse 5. Next, John notices, again, the throne itself but he, he draws our attention to something that's coming from the throne. Look at verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. Now, we look at that and, and you know, it's sometimes in churches we, we try to manipulate this, all right? We, we, this, this around the glory of God that's on display, you bring in fog machines and strobe lights and all this kind of thing, and you kind of manipulate a situation that just, you know, you, you sit here and you feel, you know, more like, oh, man, the booming and all that, and that's never going to be us. My point in bringing that up is what we see here, <laughs> it ain't fog machines, it ain't, it ain't sound effects, this is absolutely the sweeping reality of the glory and the greatness of God. Uh, this, that we so often try to reproduce, cannot be reproduced. This is real thunder. This is real lightning. This is a real shaking, if you will. And what's that all about? It's just a display of God's glory, of his power. It's very much reflective. We ought to read this and, and know what this is. The psalmist tells us in Psalm 29.3, the glory of God thunders. So where the glory of God is, we should expect massive things to happen. And that's what we see here. Furthermore, it recalls 
uh, God's divine appearance at Mount Sinai. They're going all the way back to the book of Exodus. Moses kind of describes what he beheld when the glory of God came down on Mount Sinai. Moses reports, all of Israel trembled in fear because, and I quote, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. I mean, that's pretty close to what we see happening here. Obviously, Psalm 29.3 is a reality. The God of glory thunders. He is so majestic. Things happen where God is. Things respond to the presence of God in a way that's not normal, in a way that's not natural, in a way that, man, it just, it, it would frighten us. But throughout the book, so it's a display of God's power, but in the book of Revelation, we're going to see, not only is it a demonstration of his power, in, in Revelation, lightning and loud noises accompany God's appearing in judgment. We're going to see this when we get to the, the seal judgments, the trumpets, and the, the bowl judgments. For instance, in Revelation chapter 8, the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth, and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. What's that all about? Well, it has to do with God and his judgment. And we're going to see that over and over again in Revelation 11 and Revelation chapter 16. The, there are these frightening displays of power that come out of the throne itself. And in those Revelation passages, they speak of thus God's judgment on his enemies. And so while Revelation 4 is certainly a worship passage, and a, it, it causes us to, to, to fall before him in the the reflection of his power that's on display there, it also serves as a blessing to us because it's a reminder. Think of what's happening in these seven churches. Uh, you have the Roman Empire who is wreaking havoc and Christians are suffering, Christians are being persecuted. My goodness, even John himself has been banished to the Isle of Patmos and uh, you know, as a result of his devotion to Christ. These judgment passages and the, the thunder and the lightning and the quaking are an assurance to suffering Christians. Your God is sovereign. Your God has not forgotten you. And though it may feel like your enemies are winning the day, he has not forgotten his persecutors. He has not forgotten his enemies. And he will judge them by fire. And... Again, as we look up, we're down here. We are the seven churches. We're, we're trying to conquer. And we got all these obstacles along the way. First and foremost, our own flesh. We're not even talking about those out there. It begins in here. I hadn't been able to conquer or overcome this. By God's grace, with God's help, we can. But that's a daily battle. And you got Satan, and you got the world, and you got all these kinds of enemies that, that make life in this Genesis 3 world hard, make motherhood hard, hard fatherhood, and so on and so forth. It can feel like, man, I don't, when's God going to just do what he needs to do? Has he forgotten? No. When you look at this vision and you see what's going on from the throne, it's a reminder. Oh, he's sitting on his judgment. It, the, the ground under him is quaking, the thunder, the lightning, it's coming. He's not forgotten you, and he sure has not forgotten what his enemies have done against him. The God that we look at here is worthy to be worshipped and feared, revered. Let's continue on. This is coming from the throne. Let's continue there in verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass. So now we're moving what's happening before the throne. John sees in verses 5 and 6 two objects. Seven torches or lamps. And he also sees a sea of glass, or what appears to be a sea of glass. Now, let's just 
take them individually. What are these torches? Well, we're told they're burning continuously. It's a continually burning, blazing, and it's directly, we don't have to guess. This is great. In verse 5, he tells us it's revealed to be the seven spirits of God. And praise be to God, we don't have to guess on that either because we've already seen that in Revelation chapter 1. We're familiar now with numbers are symbolic. Seven is the, is the symbolic of completion or fullness or perfection. And we saw in chapter 1, the seven spirits of God is not because there's seven Holy Spirits. There's only one. It speaks of the perfection of the Holy Spirit, the fullness of the Holy Spirit. It's a representative number that speaks of the, the completion of the Holy Spirit in all of his glory, in all of his fullness. Everything that he is is there before the throne. And as a result of the work of Jesus Christ, his life, death, his resurrection, and his ascension, that same spirit also now becomes an agent in the world who from before the throne comes and does God's bidding. If you think back to chapter 1, and can't re-preach it, but we talked about the economy of redemption. We talk, it's a Trinity, Trinitarian passage there in chapter 1 around verse 3, 4, 5. And we talked about in the economy of redemption, you have the Father who is kind of the architect of this eternal plan of salvation for his glory. You have the son, who is the one who accomplishes it through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And then you have the sevenfold fullness of the Holy Spirit, who is the applier, if you will, of the plan of redemption accomplished by Jesus Christ. And it's the Holy Spirit who carries out that eternal plan of God in hearts and lives. That's why we are believers this morning. The Holy Spirit has come and planted a new heart within us, the new birth, born from above, taking out the heart of stone, put in a heart of flesh. And the Spirit from before the throne is continually bringing the fullness of God to bear upon our individual lives. It's a wonderful image to look up and see the fullness of the Holy Spirit there, understanding his role in our lives and the necessity of the Holy Spirit, that this one, and you've got to pick your language clearly, he's not, he's not being juiced up, but the one who brings to us everything we need like a flood, man, he just resides day and night before the throne of Almighty God. Now, that should encourage us. It should awaken us to the, the person of the Holy Spirit and our constant need for him this morning. John also sees, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Now, he doesn't actually see a sea of glass. He says, as it were, like a sea of glass, like crystal. Um, what's that all about? In Jewish thought, the sea or the ocean was emblematic of chaos. The sea, and, and I think if, if, I'm not a water person myself, but I've been to the ocean, I've seen what happens close to the shore, I can only imagine what happens out there, it's chaos, those waves come crashing and all this, the sea and, and the ocean is emblematic of chaos and evil, in fact, we haven't got there yet, but in the book of Revelation, we're going to see this even more clearly. In Revelation chapter 13, it will be from the sea that John sees the beast rising to speak blasphemies and deceive the nations. It comes out of the sea. The sea is just symbolic of evil. It's symbolic of chaos. Now, we look up and we see that before the, the throne of Almighty God... We see what looks like a sea, but it's not raging. It's not chaos. It's not evil. What we see is what looks like a sea, completely calmed, at rest before the throne of God. Oh, seven churches, covenant life church among them. We understand the raging of the sea. We understand the chaos. Moms, you understand the chaos, the evil. Dads too, grandparents, we understand all this. But even while in our lives it is chaos and evil all around us, keep looking up because around his throne he is sovereign and in majesty over it all and is completely calm at his feet. 
I would imagine when you're in chaotic waters, you're trying to find safe harbor. You're trying to find something, some place to, uh, to hang on, to anchor yourself. Here Jesus, when he calls John up, says, your life is chaotic. Harbor yourself here. Here's where peaceful waters are. Get your eyes up here. Get your gaze up here. Get your heart this way. Because here is where peace is to be found. I would imagine, I'm just going to go this way for moms on Mother's Day. Moms, you probably need a, a peaceful harbor from time to time. And dads too. And I don't only mean a safe harbor from your husbands or your children, also from your own soul. You're just like me. And that safe harbor is not going to be found by looking inward. It's not going to be found down here. It's found looking up. The one who is sovereign over everything going on. He's sovereign. He rides the waves. You ever get tired of being reminded that God is sovereign? I, mean, I hope not. It, you may struggle with it. You may, your flesh, which also desires to be sovereign, may kind of cringe at it a little bit. But at the end of the day, man, we got nothing to hold on to. If God is not sovereign, we're in big, big trouble. And that's the picture here. Chaos may be how things appear right now in your illness or in your relationships or in your job or in your family or whatever the case may be. Look up. Looks like the seas there are completely calm while he's sovereign. He's governing all things, working all things according to the counsel of his will. Take that and bring that to bear in your life. He's riding the very waves that are tossing us to and fro. And then, of course, keep in mind, Revelation 21, one day there will be no more sea, which is apocalyptic way of saying all things will be made new. No more evil, no more chaos. We continue. That's going on before the throne. Continue in verse 6. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal, and around the throne, on each side, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind, around the throne. The idea there is beside the throne. So continuing going outward here, he saw the 24 elders, and he also saw the, the sevenfold spirit there, everything that we need. He noticed it looks like sea, and it's calm there. Wonderful. Oh, we need that. And then continuing, expanding outward, he sees even more incredible creatures surrounding God's throne. And again, here's what he writes about it. These, around the throne on each side are these four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The idea there, eyes in front and behind, is wisdom. They're full of wisdom. They, they're all seeing, all knowing. There's wisdom there. And he describes them. He says, one is like a lion, another one is like an ox, another one is like a man, another one looks like an eagle. And again, we come upon that age-old debate, what, who are they, what are they? Inquiring minds want to know. And the answer is, I don't know. But we want to be consistent with what we do know about reading the book of Revelation. And so I would encourage us to think in terms of, just as it was with the case of the 24 elders, it's less about their identity and our clues have to do more with the number. It has more to do with the number four. And there are no shortage of arguments about what these four creatures are. I'll let you go examine them on your own time. Um, I don't know that there's much profit in being able to discern, here's what they are. Here's where the prophet is found. In the book of Revelation, the number four is usually symbolic of the created order in its fullness. The created order in its fullness. Um, I think a clue to that being what's most important here 
is that the name that they're giving here, living creatures, echoes the Hebrew of Genesis 1, where we're told that God created living creatures. Same idea. And the four here is, is symbolic of the fullness of the created order. Around the throne, you have representative of the church. And then expanding outward, these four living creatures. There's also, you know, when you think about the, uh, the, the fullness of God, the living creatures, north, south, east, west, just the fullness of everything. They represent all the creatures that God has made. All that he rules over. And so they symbolize all of God's material universe. And notice this. It's less about who they are. It's always about, in relation to the throne, what are they doing? They are in awe of the one on the throne. In awe of their creator. And I think this might be why they are depicted as Earth's great creatures. One who looks like a lion or looks like an ox or looks like a man or looks like an eagle. Notice he does not say, I saw a lion, an eagle, a man, an ox. He says it looked something like that. And he's using these created creatures to say this is what they look like. But most importantly, the throne at the center, all of creation is just has come together and is focusing upon its creator and it's in awe of him, it's mesmerized by him, it's wooing him. And I think it signals what we're told later in Revelation, the new creation, the new heaven, the new earth, that there will be an entire creation worshiping God. The throne room is a place of worship. And that's what we need to see here. What are these things doing in relation to the one on the throne? The climax of this whole passage, well, let me, the climax is the throne, the one on the throne, and then everything moving outward, the church itself, all of creation worshiping that one. The climax of what these ones outside the throne are doing is in verses 8 through 11. The wonder of the 24 elders and the four living creatures is not who they are. It's not that they're covered in eyeballs. It's not in the number of wings that they have. It's not all of that stuff. We're not going to know until we get to heaven. <laughs> the climax, what's most important, is that they're surrounding their throne, the throne and their message to the one on the throne. As glorious as these beings are, Keep in mind, they serve no other purpose but to worship the one on the throne. And they do this by repeating the angelic song that's found in Isaiah over and over again. Verse 8, And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Day and night. They never cease to say. The worship of the one on the throne is endless. Which is exactly as it was created to be. It's exactly what we see here depicted is exactly what our lives are supposed to be. What this world is supposed to be. Except Genesis 3 messed the whole thing up. What we see here is not, wow, that's... That's what, that's what was created to be. And that's what Christ has come to restore all of creation to. Just as there is constant and eternal punishment in hell, right? Everlasting hell, ongoing, doesn't stop, never ending. So too, there is constant and perpetual worship in heaven forever and ever and ever. It doesn't stop. And here was my own personal takeaways. In contrast to all of this, day and night never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Sometimes I have trouble in the three songs we sing in worship, <laughs> concentrating through the three songs. You may not have that problem. Sometimes I do. I'm over here. I'm, I'm, I'm worshiping. I'm, I'm, I'm 
got so many thoughts going through my mind, getting ready to get up here, sometimes I have trouble concentrating. Sometimes I have struggle paying attention to the preached word. Just, man, I got so much going on. I'm the one up here preaching it. <laughs> but how many hours do I find in the day to troll on Twitter or Facebook? How many hours do I spend through the week texting or calling? I can find time in my day for two, three-hour movie, even when I've seen it a dozen times. Please don't hear me saying that those are necessarily inherently evil or bad things. I say it is food for thought. This God that we're talking about here, our representatives are showing us this is what he's worthy of. The four living creatures outside of them are showing us this is what you were created for. This is what Christ redeemed you for and us for. Night and day, they never cease to worship. And notice the heavenly hymn they sing. It's not just, man, what they're singing is rich theology. They're singing the attributes of God. Holy, holy, holy. God is holy, taken straight out of the book of Isaiah. Holy. Morally pure, yes. But more theologically, the idea of holiness is superior to all else. Supreme. Nothing like him. One of a kind. Nothing that compares to him. Nothing I see on Facebook or Twitter or in that movie for the twelfth time. Or I'll find out in that text or that phone call or Nothing I see there can compare to who he is. He's holy. It also focuses upon his sovereignty. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He knows no limitations. There are no boundaries to his strength. There's nothing he can't do. That is diametrically opposed to every one of us who are overridden with limitations. Not our sovereign God. And oh, by the way, he's eternal. He was and is and is to come. Verse 9 tells us he's the one who lives forever. And we see in verses 9 through 11, whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, those four living creatures, whenever they do it, then, verse 10, the 24 elders fall down before him who was seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, O our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were existed. It's a glorious redundancy. Now we live in a day today where redundancy irritates us. All right? We don't like repetition. We're kind of like, move along. We're this fast-paced, um, fast-food, drive-through. Come on, let's go. Redundancy irritates us. They don't seem irritated in the least. These 24 elders, they're worshiping, following, uh, they're echoing the all of creation, worshiping God. These 24 elders, they join in and they fall down before him. And it appears they get right back up only to fall right back down again. And this is an eternal, ongoing thing. They fall down just so they can get right back up and do it all over again. Over and over. Some of us, it just baffles us. Why are they falling down Three times we see it in verse 10, then we're going to see it two more times in chapter 5 in the coming weeks. Why do they keep doing this? These poor creatures, can they not keep their feet? Are they weevil wobbles? Are they, I mean, can they not keep their composure? They're standing there, they fall over, they stand up, they fall down over and over. Why? It has nothing to do with the limitation in them. It has everything to do with the one on the throne. 
It has everything to do with the one in whose presence they live, Almighty God. And I was thinking about this this week, and don't take this too far. We will continue to stand when we sing, if you're able. And, and I hope this will uh, benefit you. If you're in a situation, we say stand and sing, and you're like, my back's hurting, my leg's hurting, I can't do it. There is no reflection on your spiritual life if you don't stand when you're singing. Here's my comment. I think we think about this backwards. We think it's appropriate to stand when we sing. In light of Revelation 4, the most appropriate thing we might do, all right, it's time to worship, is everybody get down on the floor and get face down. That might be the most rational, biblical, theological thing for us to do. And for those of you who have difficulty standing, maybe you would appreciate that more. My, my point simply being, these 24 elders who are representative of who? Us, the church, the redeemed, are so overwhelmed by the grandeur of God. The most appropriate position for them is to fall down prostrate. And these 24, uh, excuse me, four living creatures... Why do they never cease day or night to praise God? Is it their duty? Do they get a paycheck at the end of every week, and if they have kept time and everything, they get rewarded for it? Is it, their, is it what they get paid for? No. What else would they do in the presence of Almighty God? When you see Him for who He is, and you know Him, well, what else could compete with that? I mean, that's the message we preach in Christianity. God is all, Christ is all, looking unto him. He is the all-sufficient one. The, the reason we have to redundantly, repetitiously drive that home every Sunday is because we're weak. We're still battling. But these who are there night and day in his presence, there's nothing to compete with him. And they know we see him for who he is. And nothing compares to him. They're so mesmerized, they just never cease. And their worship is passionate, it's extravagant, uninhibited. There's somebody who prays most Lord's Day mornings in our prayer meeting for our prayers, our praise to be uninhibited. And I don't like it when she prays that because I'm a guy who I, I like keeping things inhibited, <laughs> if that's the right word. I'm not a boisterous personality. I'm not a, and that's okay. We have our own personalities. You don't have to be. This, this passage doesn't say, it's just simply say, when our hearts are truly seeing and savoring who he is, it's not saying we're going to become obnoxious. It's just saying maybe there will be a little bit more life than we're accustomed to. And here's what I do think. If, if we don't like uninhibited worship, uh, heaven's going to be miserable. <laughs> so we have these angelic creatures worshiping day and night. The 24 elders laying their crowns before the throne saying, you are worthy, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Well, let me try to land this thing. What is the practical payoff of this? I told you in the very first week in our study of the book of Revelation, I'm trying to reframe how we think about Revelation, that it is the most practical book in all the New Testament, in all the Bible. So then, what is the benefit of having immersed ourselves these past several weeks in this vision? Why, as I said last week, would Revelation 4 and 5 be a great life chapter for you to look to every week, every day? Spend some time looking up into this throne room. How does this vision of God affect my struggle as a mother, as a father, as a human being, pursuing a holy life, meanwhile, facing the temptations that I constantly face day in and day out, just like the seven churches. How is this intended to help? Here's my answer. So that we would walk out of here spiritually dazed. Dazed. And if we've spent three weeks in Revelation chapter 4, and you are not spiritually dazed, 
I don't mean that as a reflection on these sermons have been brilliant, and if you haven't, that is not what I'm talking about at all. I'm talking about if you're even just paying attention to Revelation chapter 4, irregardless of me up here running my mouth. Your heart should be dazed. My heart should be dazed. There should be such a grasp of the reality of God's greatness on display and his majesty that there is, in a sense, walking around with our mouth wide open, eyes popping in wonder. Now, here's why that's important. And I made mention of it last week, and I've only had more time to think about it this week. Spiritually stunned people are not easily seduced by sin. This is the practical payoff. The call is to conquer, to overcome. I can't do that. Jesus says, come up here, and we have this vision of Revelation chapter 4. We're doing our best to understand all in relation to the throne and the one on the throne. And we're we're not even done. Revelation 5 is going to bring in a whole other aspect of this vision. But why in the world? What's the connection? Spiritually stunned people who are stunned dazed by who God is, are not easily seduced by sin. I'm not saying they're not seduced by sin. I said they're not easily seduced by sin. When you're dazzled by God, it's difficult to be duped by sin. Can you imagine the four living creatures being tempted to turn away from the throne? Someone coming in and saying, hey, 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 four living creatures. Again, symbolic, allow me the imagery. Hey, look at this over here. Can you imagine them being turned away? Or or, or someone holding before the 24 elders some allure from this world. Do you think that would have any effect on them who are sitting day and night gazing upon this one on the throne? Would it resonate with their hearts? Why? Because they are so mesmerized by him. Because they see him. And when you are enthralled by God and his beauty, it is difficult. I'm not saying impossible. It's more challenging to be enchanted by other things. Now, we're down here. We're not up there. We're down here. And there is our flesh, and there is Satan, and there is the world. Up here, simultaneous time, we're talking about the redeemed, the kind of the glorified life. So when I'm drawing this, I'm not suggesting that we can perfectly be that. I'm suggesting that maybe there's something there that God intends to help us down here. Because the call is to conquer. If we don't conquer, if we don't make it to the finish line, clinging to Jesus, looking to Jesus, loving Jesus, we didn't make the finish line. And God calls us up into the throne room while we continue here in the seven churches to say, when you're enthralled by this, you will not be easily captivated by your flesh, by the world, by compromise, and by Satan. And I don't claim that I'm in this camp. Far from it. But I will say throughout church history, reading about people whose attention has been captivated by the glory of God, by the beauty of Christ. They are the ones who seem to find very little glamour about the things in this world. So, the question for the seven churches, the question for us this morning, What will it take to liberate us from the idols of this world, from the false teaching of this world, from compromise with this world, to to free us from a heart that uh, doesn't love him the way that we should? What is going to overcome my proclivity to envy, to greed, to lust, to jealousy? What is going to overcome those things? Revelation 4, the answer is, behold your God. See him as he is. And 10 minutes before you go to work in the morning isn't sufficient. Don't end that. There needs to be more. 
Beholding God breaks the chains of idolatry. Beholding God purifies your heart from immorality. Beholding God helps you conquer the suffering you're going through. It helps you conquer the heartache you're going through. In just a moment, we're going to be singing a song I think we all know. It is well with my soul. Most of you probably already know this, but for those of you who don't, before we sing, it was written by a man named Horatio Spafford. It was written in a context, I'm not going to go into the whole story, he had just lost four daughters in a shipwreck. He had sent his wife and four daughters, four daughters across the Atlantic Ocean. They were going for a little getaway, a spiritual retreat. Spafford was a godly businessman who had had some struggles in his business, and they were all supposed to go together. But at the last minute, a business opportunity came up for Spafford, and he had to take advantage of it. It had just been a very difficult time. It was the time of the Chicago fires. His business had been absolutely demolished. So he sent his wife and four daughters on ahead saying, let me take care of the business here. I'll rejoin you in a few days. About four days later, Spafford gets a telegram from his wife. The ship that he sent them on, it ran into a Scottish iron ship. And the ship that his family was on went down within 12 minutes. The four daughters all drowned. His wife survived. So Spafford gets on a boat to go to his wife's side. The captain of that ship, who's aware of what's happened, the tragedy, in the midst of that journey across the Atlantic, calls Spafford up to the deck. Says, Horatio, as best we can tell, we've got the coordinates. We are over the location where that ship sank just days ago and where your daughters are buried. From there, Spafford went and pen the song we're about to sing, of which the last verse is this. And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. What's he clinging to there? What, what, what is this, the, the clouds be rolled back? Where, where has he been looking? That now he's, he's bringing this to bear upon this time of heartache and grief and despair in his life. Obviously, this is a man who's been looking up in Revelation chapter 4. And he's fighting the despair. He's fighting the grief. He's fighting the heartache. All that these churches, seven churches, and we likewise, he's applying Revelation chapter 4. And his earnest plea is, God, the only thing that's going to get me through this is for this vision to be fulfilled, to become mine, and that's my plea. I've just lost my four daughters, and it is well because I'm clinging to you, and my hope is that this will be mine. Revelation is practical. Revelation is teaching us here that beholding God and being captivated by his greatness is the most eminently practical benefit you can have in this Christian life. Moms, dads, sinful man, sinful woman, sinful guy up here at front. We leave here, the journey continues. Revelation chapter 4. Worshiping this God, knowing this God, clinging to this God is our only hope of victory and conquering. I don't know what you're going through this morning. We each individually have our own. Our prayer is that God would grant grace to help us see and help our unbelief believe He is enough.